You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. You're listening to the 2012 song Hall of Fame by The Script and Will I Am, which means it's that time of year again. The Cybersecurity Canning Committee has announced the Hall of Fame inductees for the 2023 season to coincide with the RSA conference. And I got to interview the winning authors and Canning Committee members who recommended the books. As you all know, N2K and the leaders of the Cybersecurity Canon Project team up each year to highlight this valuable and free resource for the entire InfoSec community to find the absolute must-read books for the cybersecurity professional. And the next book we're going to talk about, the next inductee into the Canon Hall of Fame this year, is Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction by Dr. Phil Tetlock and Dan Gardner. So, hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. This is going to be fun. My name is Rick Howard, and I'm broadcasting from the CyberWire's alternate Secret Sanctum Sanctorum Studios located underwater somewhere along the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge in the good old U.S. of A., and the interns can't be more ecstatic for this change of venue. Hey, 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 settle down back there. This is only temporary. It's back to the Baltimore underwater lair next week. You don't want to give them too much hope. And you're listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Before we get started, the CyberWire will be out in force at the RSA conference this year. Dave Bittner and crew, including me, will be hanging out at the Marriott Marquis Hotel, second level, Foothill H Boardroom. If you're in the vicinity, stop by. If we're not doing a live interview, we would love to see you. As for me, I'm giving a presentation on Wednesday afternoon, 26 April, at 2.25 p.m. called The Emperor Has No Clothes, about the evolution and current state of the CISO position with my pal, Todd Inskeep. And immediately after, I'm signing copies of my book, 
Cybersecurity First Principles, a reboot of strategy and tactics at the conference bookstore in Moscone South from 3.30 to 4.30. And speaking of books, if you're looking for your next cybersecurity book to read, besides mine, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> members of the Cybersecurity Canon Committee will be at the bookstore Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. to help you decide your next most favorite read. They can point you into a direction to match your interests. So, with all those announcements out of the way, it's time to talk about the book. Okay, so my name is Dan Gardner. I would call myself a journalist and author. I write books about psychology and decision-making. Dan is being quite modest. His books on psychology and decision-making have been praised by everyone, from The Economist to Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. He is a Canadian journalist by training, receiving the prestigious Mishner Award, the National Newspaper Award, and the Canadian Association of Journalists Award, along with other awards from Amnesty International Canada, the John Howard Society, and the Department of Justice. He holds a law degree and a master's in modern history. More importantly, he is the co-author of my favorite book on risk, Super Forecasting, the Art and Science of Prediction, with his co-author, Dr. Phil Tetlock. And even though this is not a cyber book per se, it changed my mind completely about how the industry should go about calculating cyber risk. Well, first of all, the super forecasting title, is what a great title that is. That captures it all, right? So, and I'm a huge fan, like I said, at the front of this, but uh, is it fair to say that the book is a summary of an experiment conducted by IARPA, which is the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency? Is that is that a fair qualification of what the book's about? Yeah, I mean, it's that yeah. is the core of the book, is that research program. Uh, I should back up and say, Basically, the genesis of, of the research program, of the book, the whole thing, uh, was the Iraq war debacle, uh, believe it or not. Oh. Uh, because after that happened, after the intelligence community said, sure, there are weapons of mass destruction, and there turned out not to be weapons of mass destruction, uh, officials within <laughs> the intelligence community very sensibly said, you know what, we've got to do better than this. Um, and so they started really seriously examining themselves and thinking, well, how do we do better? And, and they went and spoke to uh, leading experts in forecasting, uh, including my, my co-author, Philip Tetlock. And Philip Tetlock is uh, uh, a very eminent psychologist at uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, and he's one of the leading researchers in this field, has been for decades. And uh, Phil and others said to them, look, uh, a really big part of the problem that you have is that you actually don't even know how accurate your forecasting is, right? Lots of people had opinions about how accurate intelligence community forecasting was, but it had never been properly studied and tested. Uh, and unfortunately, that's, you know, I remember Phil telling me that the first time and being absolutely shocked because <laughs> this, is, this is kind of important stuff, right? Um, but in Listen, fact... Listen, I don't know, but I... I just read, uh, I've read two books on the CIA in the last year or so, and I'm not shocked at all after reading those two books. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you always imagine, you know, it must be the, the, the wiliest, savviest, well, not necessarily, um, and, but, but yeah, you know, yeah. be fair to the intelligence committee, well, not somewhat fair, uh, I will point out that uh, they are far from unique in that. Um, there are whole industries which rely on forecasting, whether it's their own forecasting or forecasting they get from consultants or others, 
Um, and they don't know how good that forecasting is. They don't know if it could be better. They don't know if they're doing everything right or everything wrong. They simply don't know. And that's a huge problem. And that's one of the, one of the big themes of the book is, look, it's no longer good enough to make a forecast uh, and then make decisions on the basis of that forecast and then just sort of forget about things. You know, we've got to start holding people to account, not necessarily to punish people for being wrong, because it's a big, complicated world. If you make a forecast and it's wrong, you know, no harm, no foul. But you want to make your forecast as good as possible. And the only way to do that is to have clarity about how good they are now. Well, I was poking fun at the CIA, but uh, in truth, the entire cybersecurity industry is this way. We make huge buying decisions on tools and people and process uh, without really understanding how to forecast anything. And we use, uh, if I describe how how we do it, Dan, you're going to go, oh my God, that sounds like witchcraft and voodoo and, (laughs) you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so that's why I was so enamored with uh, your book when it first came out, but help the audience out here. What is IARPA and what's its relationship to DARPA. It sounds similar. Are they the, <laughs> they work in the same area? Yeah, it's it's a I think it's a deliberately uh, the name is supposed to be uh, you know an echo of DARPA. Um, it's an agency within uh, the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI Office. Of the Director of National Intelligence is basically the office which oversees all of the sixteen agencies that collectively constitute the United States intelligence community. That's the CIA, the NSA, all the rest of them. Um, so the ODNI is at top. IARPA is comes under the ODNI, um, and it was IARPA. It was the officials within IARPA who said uh, to Phil, my co-author, and others, um, "Look, we've got to do better. How do we do better?" And so, as I said, they they started by saying, "Look, you, you, you first got to start measuring these things." Uh, uh, but number two, what they suggested was um, that they uh, create a real world forecasting tournament. And when I say tournament, it makes it sound like a game. And there was a competitive aspect, but of course it wasn't a game. It was a, an enormous and frankly very expensive and important research program in which they basically went to, officials at IARPA went to uh, leading researchers in forecasting around the world, university-based researchers, and they said, look, what we will do is we will uh, look at the world, the, you know, the world that we make forecasts in, you know, the big important questions like, how is the Chinese economy going to perform? You know, will Russia seize the Crimea? All those sorts of questions that we try to forecast all the time. Really, we, really hard, really hard questions, right? This yeah. is not, you know, yeah, exactly. these are tough things to figure out. Yeah. These are hard, <laughs> complex, difficult problems. And they're real world problems. And that's the key point mm-hmm. because this allows you, once you ask the question and people make their forecasts, then you can just let time pass and then you can see what actually happens and you can score the accuracy of the forecast. And if you do that often enough, you can build up a large enough database that you can start to make judgments about who's accurate and who's not. Mm-hmm. Is it, so you said the academic community from around the world, but the there are two other groups, right? There, are, I understand there's the intelligence community was in this tournament and uh, a bunch of amateurs were in it too, if I, if I could describe it that way. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So so the way I would describe it is this, that there ended up being basically five university-based research teams competing. And basically, IARPA's directions to them was, you set up a team, you make your forecast using any methods you want. 
And then what we can do is we can compare and contrast methods and see what's working and what's not working, which is sensible enough. Well, one of those five university-based research teams uh, was something called the Good Judgment Project. Um, And that was the team that was headed by my co-author, Philip Tetlock. And the core of what the Good Judgment Project did was very, very simple. They simply went out and they got huge numbers of people to volunteer. Uh, literally spend a little bit of their free time making geopolitical forecasts. Um, and they managed to get a lot of people to do this. They, uh, they At any one time over the four-year program, there was between 2,800 and 3,000 people making forecasts. And over uh, uh, the four years, that over 20,000 people participated. And then, so what they were able to do, because they had such a large volunteer base, is that they were able to set up, you know, separate uh, experimental conditions, uh, and all sorts of different, really juicy forms of research. And so, as you can imagine, the, f- the findings that come out of this research, it's, it's all very complicated. And it, but to, to summarize, for our purposes, what really matters is that, number one, the Good Judgment Project wins, you know, hands down, pulls away. By a lot, and, right? By a lot, that's right. So, so collectively, we can say the Good Judgment Project wins, um, but... More specifically, and hence the title of the book, there are there's a small number of individuals who are top of the charts within the Good Judgment Project. These are the volunteer. Remember, they're volunteer forecasters. These are just ordinary folks who volunteer to do this, but they're super good, and they're most importantly, they're consistently good. Because of course, anybody can be good once or twice, but if you're consistently good, you're probably looking at skill, not luck. Um, so, so. They're really, really good. They're so good, in fact, that these folks, um, they beat prediction markets, which economists would say, you know, they can't do that, but they did. Yeah, They beat the, uh, the standards. At the outset of the research program, the officials running this research program set goals that they hoped that somebody would be able to achieve. And the researchers actually thought that the goals were too ambitious, that nobody would be able to do that. In fact, the super forecasters blew past those benchmarks. And then the third way in which the super forecasters excelled is is probably the most interesting and amazing, which is that they beat the professional intelligence analysts. Now, this is not officially confirmed because it's the intelligence community and they like their secrets. Um, (laughs) But but I can tell you. I'm shocked. Shocked, I say. (laughs) (laughs) while, While this program is going on, they simultaneously have uh, forecasters within the intelligence community, professionals, who are making forecasts, and then they're able to compare and contrast, which is very sensible. And what they find is that the super forecasters very handily beat the professional intelligence analysts. And now why does that matter? That matters enormously for one specific reason. Um, The professional intelligence analysts have access to all that classified information that's produced exactly. by the budgets of the intelligence community. Whereas who are the people who are the super forecasters who beat them? Well, I'll tell you, I've sat down with some of these people. And I said, you know, walk me through your process. What do you do when, when you have to make a forecast? And what they do is they sit down at the kitchen table, they open a laptop and they go to Google. <laughs> their, their information, you know, it's not exactly super Wait. secret spy stuff. Well, uh, are you telling me that we spend gazillions of dollars on our intelligence community and really all you need is a search bar on Google? Is that, <laughs> is, is that what we're going to? <laughs> I, I would like to think that there is some value to having classified information. However, it is a fact. 
that the super super forecasters, despite not having access to classified information, beat the people who have access to classified information, which is pretty darn impressive because who are these people? They're, 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 if you'd like to hear the rest of this interview, subscribe now to CyberWire Pro. Not only will you get to hear this interview in its entirety, but also all shows in the CSO Perspectives podcast series in total. The quarterly analyst call that I host, along with every podcast in the CyberWire network, ad-free. And you all know that's my favorite part. To subscribe, surf over to the CyberWire, all one word, dot com slash pro. That's the CyberWire.com slash pro. I'd like to thank Dan Gardner for coming on the show to discuss his book, The Latest Inductee into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame, Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. If you'd like to learn more about this book, as well as all the other books in the Cybersecurity Canon series, surf on over to Ohio State University, the official sponsor for the Canon Project, at cybersecuritycanon.com. And finally, if you're attending the RSA conference this year, there will be Canon committee members sitting at the RSA conference bookstore Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. to help you find your next best cybersecurity read, which we all know will be my new book, Cybersecurity First Principles, A Reboot of Strategy and Tactics. Links to all of this are in the show notes. And finally, if you're attending the RSA conference, come find us. The CyberWire team will be hanging out at the Marriott Marquis Hotel, second level, Foothill H boardroom. We would love to see you. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO PRO to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire.